Welcome back to The Julie Norman Show, a podcast on politics, ethics, and current affairs. Today, my guest is Chris Tudor. Chris has really lived a life of public service, trying to develop what he calls the common good in his hometown of Memphis, Tennessee, including faith-based service, improving race relations, and really just working on various community issues. And for the past two years, Chris has served as the chairman of the Republican Party in Shelby County. So at a time when national politics are just so highly divisive and polarized, I wanted to have Chris on the show to tell me more about what politics and really community in general is like in Shelby County and how his vision of the common good fits into all that. We talk about how local politics differ from the national level, what Democrats get wrong about Republicans and vice versa, the tensions and contradictions within both parties, as well as race, religion, personal journeys, and a whole lot more. So this was a pretty wide-ranging conversation, but one that I just really, really enjoyed, and I hope that you will too. So now here is my conversation with Chris Tudor. All right, Chris Tudor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Well, Chris, I want I want to be able to talk with you more about how you decided to run for chair of the Shelby County Republican Party. I think that was about two years ago. Exactly. Is that right? Like two That's years ago, right. February? Almost exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess before talking more about that and why you actually ran and what you wanted to do, I, I just I understand you have a whole really life experience of public service, of civic engagement and I just wanted to know what your personal path was that kind of led you up to that point. What got you interested in politics, in serving the public, and taking on a role like this? What was what was the journey or the path to that? Yeah, I think you oversell me a little bit, but I, I appreciate the compliment. Um, it's it's in it's in my blood. My grandfather um, introduced me to politics. My late grandfather, who uh, was a a very wise, thoughtful, uh, hardworking man. He was never uh, an elected official. He was more of kind of like I am, just kind of a, a low-level party hack. But um, I grew up, uh, you know, listening to him, campaigning with him. You know, he was on public access television. So that sort of got it in the bloodstream and it, it never really left. So it, 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 part of it is just, um, it's, it's a personal passion. It's a joy. But the other part, and this is, um, yeah, I think probably the, the bigger driver is that I, I'm a true believer. I, I really am. I, I think that um, I, I don't think politics is the be all end all, but I think it's a real tool to um, to help uh, to help people. Right. I mean, the, the end goal of of the uh, of the polis. Right. Is is you want to in, in my, my mind is that you want to maximize the opportunity for every individual and family to live a more prosperous and safer life. And um, so, so my journey was, was getting involved in it, um, at an early age and then having different opportunities to participate in, but really, uh, on my own, um, coming to believe very strongly in, um, broadly speaking, uh, political conservatism as an ideology. It's been very influenced by my, my faith as well, but, um, politics again, not, not the ultimate, but it is a real opportunity um, to, and this is going to sound trite, but I believe it, it's to, to love and serve your neighbor. And, and that's, and that's the heart of it for me. Um, that doesn't mean it, it doesn't get sidetracked with, 
with vanity or selfishness or anything like that. But, but I, I like to think that most of the time at the heart of it, it's, it's just, it's my opportunity. It's, it's my chance in a small way to, to, to love and serve my neighbor. Nice. And I, I read some stuff that you had written and you said a couple of times that you wanted to contribute to the common good of the community. And you use that phrase a couple of times in things that you've written. I was wondering how you define the common good and what that means to you and maybe how it dovetails with that conservative ideology that you just mentioned as well. Yeah, that's um, that's a great question. I, I think probably you, you'll find more in America on the left, at least the word, com- the phrase common good being used. But um, I, I don't think that any uh, political ideology ideology has a monopoly on it. Um, I use it because I've been deeply influenced by Catholic social teaching, which you know, in contrast to a lot of the right in America, a lot of the right in America is it really emphasizes the individual. The uh, Catholic social teaching emphasizes a balance between the individual's rights and obligations and the community's rights and obligations with a special emphasis on on the family, which is sort of the ultimate cell where the individual and group um, goods are um, sort of reach equilibrium or are maximized. So that's why I emphasize that because it's not exclusively about uh, I don't view people as atomistic, you know, interchangeable, um, you know, sums of preferences. And I know that's that's I know that's very that's very loaded what I just said, but that's a I think that's a very um, reductionist, minimalist view of the human person. And I, I don't think it's um, one. I don't think it's true or real. And, and number two, I don't I don't think it's conducive to human flourishing. So. I use that the common good intentionally, repeatedly, because that's what it's about. It's not just about you know s- s- maximizing self-actualization for an individual person. Uh, I think you see that more in libertarianism, but I think true political conservatism, at least you know the stream that I'm part of, is 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 broader than that. It's it's you know we want individuals to succeed, we want individuals to be happy, but it's also about the family and it's also about the community, and that's what I try to emphasize. And it's so interesting you say that I was I was raised Catholic as well. And before the term social justice became quite a buzz phrase in the U.S. and across the world, I guess, in Catholic teaching, social justice is very much a part of, yeah, Catholic social teaching and, and, and common good teaching. And can you just say a bit more about how the faith aspects kind of help shape some of your thoughts on these things and if it contrasts with maybe current current ways that term is used or, or not? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So um, I am, for lack of a better term, a convert and an adult convert to Roman Catholicism, um, along with my wife. So we were received into the Roman Catholic Church, I guess, almost seven years ago now. And uh, there was a lot of time spent before that sort of interacting with Roman Catholicism and, and its theology and its you know, the, the ramifications of, of its theology on politics and society, etc. So a lot of this maybe you, you, you probably need to um, take it with a grain of salt because it you know there's some zeal of a convert with it, but you know it was really a revelation to me um, again as someone who was sort of brought up in this in, in America where there's I would say an overemphasis on individual rights, um, I would say at the expense of of the family and the community and and what the Catholic Church teaches obviously is that every individual person is willed into being by the ground and source of all being God um, out of purely gratuitous love. So every individual has has infinite eternal value. Um, but we are not we are we are born into this world where we're um, created to live in community with other human beings. Um, the most 
common form of that is, is in the form of, of a family, which takes different forms. Um, but we, we are born into, born as individuals into a community with, with rights, but with also duties and obligations to our family, um, to our neighbors, um, to our country, and to, to every other person on planet Earth. So that, that was something that has been that sort of idea. And, and, you know, a lot of this, as you touched on, the Catholic social teaching is, you know, sort of, it's, it's a lot of it's been there, but it was really elaborated um, in the early 20th century um, as, you know, communism and, and capitalism and all their variants were, were fighting and, and, and the, the popes um, and some encyclicals had a lot of interesting things to say about um, the wisdom maybe taken from both of those or, or where both of them go wrong. Um, so that's been really influential. Um, to me personally, and I, and I buy it. I'm a true, like I said, I'm a true believer. So take it with a grain of salt. I, I really think um, that 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 mode of thought, Catholic social teaching, um, it, it is the best. I, I think that it will result, if applied, and, and every circumstance is different, but if applied, it will it will result in 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 the best for people, and in, in, in allowing people to be fully alive and live fully um, humane, beautiful lives, and. Uh, maybe that sounds silly, but I think it's the truth. Not at all. Um, but it does. I think to finish up your your second part of the question, now now that I'm thinking, which is which is maybe where the rubber meets the road, it sort of does. Um, it it can put me in a, an odd position politically, right? Um, I'm I'm the chairman of the Republican Party here in my metro area, and but um, there's a lot of maybe issues where uh, Catholic social teaching doesn't line up with Republican Party orthodoxy. So that, that there's a tension there, right? There's a tension there. and you, and you see it. Um, I think, I think you see it at the ballot box with how Roman Catholics vote and other Christians vote, but also in individual politicians, it doesn't line up neatly uh, with either side necessarily. Could, could you say a bit more about some of those tensions and also maybe what, what nudged you from more of a, I guess, more individualist approach to one that's more social teaching or, or Catholic oriented as well? Sure. Yeah, so um, I'll tell you, I find a home in the Republican Party because I, I think that um, Catholic social teaching on, on issues about um, abortion rights and, and family and human sexuality um, are, are, are sort of more in line with at least part of the Republican Party. And and on the contrary, I think you could make a good argument that um, that maybe more democratic arguments about um, the social welfare state, about climate change, uh, about just war theory, may, maybe are, are more in line. Uh, I think the the partisan divides are, are becoming a little bit more blurred these days as we're undergoing, I think, what really is an ideological shift. Um, so you see the Republican Party maybe being a little bit more populist, a little bit more soft on fiscal policy. I, I think I, I welcome that warmly or, or being non-interventionist. Um, and it's foreign policy less likely to, you know, preemptive war and all of that, maybe more of a just war theory. So, but but there is a tension there. And, and I'll tell you, I, I fall into the Republican camp a whole lot more easily because um, I assign more weight to the first issues that I, um, that, that I discuss. Well, I, I may come back to a few points you just made, but I, I'm curious, just you're used to, I think, having to speak across different different individuals and demographics of the party, as well as I think from what I've seen you write and things you've said, trying to reach across the aisle too with many Democrats in Shelby County as well. Can you just tell me more about Shelby County, about what yeah. the community there is like? Yeah, just what, what's it like? Tell me about Shelby County. See, you're making another mistake. That's after talking about Roman Catholicism, talking about Memphis is like my second favorite thing. So <laughs> I'm not gonna, I can't stop. So, um, 
Shelby County, which is uh, where Memphis is located, Memphis is a metro area at the corner of Tennessee. So if you're looking at the map of Tennessee, we're in the southwest corner on the border of Arkansas and Mississippi. It's a metro area of about 1.3 million people. And several years ago, I think this is still true, but it is the only metro area in the United States of America that has an African-American majority. So there are cities, right, that have their own boundaries that have African-American majorities. But we're talking about the entire metro area has about a just right above 50 percent African-American majority. Um, Shelby County, the I think the the, the white population is 40 percent in the city of Memphis. The white population is now below 30 and then it's, it's, you know, 60 plus African-Americans. So sort of very unique demographics, maybe not for the South, but for America as a whole. And you know, at this, as everyone knows, in this in this sort of political cultural moment, African Americans are disproportionately de- voting Democratic, and that was not always the case, right? The, the Republican Party, the first African American senator, the first African American representatives, they were all Republican, and African Americans were Republican. You know, you could argue until the New Deal, and maybe in Memphis until the '60s. Actually, funnily enough, you ask the in one of our papers just this week, there was an op-ed from um, a friend of mine who's a professor at the University of Memphis, and he's a political commentator. He was explaining the shift of the African-American, but he's African-American guy, and he's more on the left side of things, but he was explaining sort of the shift from in Memphis of African-Americans from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party. But what I find very interesting is that you know, if you if you look a lot of these issues, if you really dig deep in in the polling, if you know how much polling you buy, I don't know. That's 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 you know that's your speed. But um, you know, to but if you buy it um, on a lot of issues, African Americans are, are are conservative, and I think we saw something absolutely fascinating in 2020, and we saw it in Memphis here too. And I'll come back to it with the numbers. But in 2020, we had a President Trump who received a tremendous amount of criticism rightly or wrongly i think a lot of it was was unfair but but he certainly said some things that you know that i disagree with and that were inappropriate but he was criticized right as this by some on the left as this representation of white supremacism et cetera et cetera i mean really knocked i mean people you know p- people said the guy was a racist and um whether or not that's true i'm putting that to the side again i, I don't think that's true even though he said things that are inappropriate or wrong that i disagree with but if you look at the numbers president trump got more, got a higher percentage of votes among ethnic minorities than any Republican nominee since Richard Nixon. But for example, among African-American men, we're looking at data now that suggests that one out of five African-American men voted for Donald Trump. And, and, you know, the Hispanic Latino vote is a different question. I'm not, I'm not as well versed in that, but you saw that as well. I mean, Miami-Dade, picked up 45% of the vote, I think, Mm Miami-Dade County. Now, if I asked you as a political scientist, just hypothetically, in a random election, a Republican nominee getting 45% of the vote in Miami-Dade, you would have said it would have been Reagan-Mondale again. And we didn't see that. Obviously, President Trump lost, but, you know, you, you can see the potential of the seismic shifts that could occur if that sort of trend continues. But we're seeing that in Memphis. So uh, the New York Times published just a few days ago a map at the precinct level of the entire United States. I'm sure you saw this. It was it, it got a lot of play on the Internet, but you could you could scroll in and see the different precincts about the shift from 2016 to 2020. And in Memphis, it was a racial map of the city. It was a racial map of the city. So red was that shifted more toward Trump. Blue was shifted more towards Biden, toward the Democrats, excuse me. And the the areas that shifted slightly, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to mm-hmm. overstate this case, but slightly by several percentage points were the areas of the, of the community that are um, more African-American and the areas that shifted more to Biden. And we're talking about, you know, upper middle class, all white neighborhoods shifted more toward the Democrats, and some of which, some of these precincts, Biden Biden actually won, probably the first time a Democrat's won in, in decades. So we're seeing that on the ground. And 
but you know, I, I think it's I think it's going to take a long time, and I think it's really incumbent more on the Republican Party to to make the pitch. But but the way I see it, to sum it up in a nutshell, is that um, African Americans among any race or ethnicity are um, more religious by any proxy. So if you if you look at the polling data, do you pray every day? Do you believe in God? Is God an important part of your life? Do you go to church? Whatever. They're more religious, and so um, unsurprisingly, they can be a little bit more socially conservative. So it, you can imagine a world in which you have a, a, a Republican Party that's more more of a working class party that that's that's softer on entitlement spending. That's not all about you know um, reforming um, Medicare and Social Security. They're they're not out there taking you know trying to take food stamps. You know I'm I'm being I'm a little, being a little facetious, but that's the knock, right? You remember mm-hmm. you know that that that's been the knock for a long time. Um, if, if you have more of an economically populist party that that is paired with some of more of these socially conservative perspectives, you could see, uh, I think you could see huge percentages of African-Americans vote Republican and, and same with Hispanics. And I think you're, you're seeing the beginnings of that right now, but I think it's going to be incumbent upon the Republican party to, to, to really, to, to, to reach out and to ditch anything that suggests that we do not have complete solidarity, um, with the African-American community. And, And that means ditching a lot of this rhetoric that you hear from some of the people on the right, which is, uh, you know, unacceptable. And the, the, you know, white supremacism, right, right supremacism, or anything like that has um, should have nothing to do with the Republican Party, and it should absolutely have nothing to do with you know the conservative movement generally. But I think it's going to take decades. But I, I predict in fifty years that the Democratic Party will not have a lock on um, ethnic minority voters, uh, especially um, African Americans. And um, I, I hope to be to to, to be a, a a little part of that. Yeah, I think some of the data that you were citing from the 2020 election, that was some of the most interesting data that that I saw as well with the exit polls, where I think what I saw right after the election was that the only demographic group that Trump did not make gains with was white men. Like, with, like with, Yeah, like like me. That's exactly right. That's the same thing I saw, but, which was the opposite, I think, of what a lot of people were predicting, right? You know, the white guys are going to fall in line behind Donald Trump for a variety of reasons, maybe some insidious, maybe not. And and I, let me let me make one clarification. For me, this is not a partisan game. Like it's it's not a oh well maybe if we can you know get forty percent of the African American vote instead of fifteen percent. Then it again ultimately what it comes down to is you know I really believe that the public policies that the Republican Party has on offer, generally speaking, are better for people. They're better for my neighbors. They're they're going to mean more jobs. They're going to mean safer neighborhoods. They're going to mean better schools. They're going to mean happier, uh, more fruitful, more humane lives. And I really believe that. So it's not for me when I say this, it's not in a vacuum where I'm like, well, I just want to win. It's not about that. And the moment it becomes anything about uh, it, it, the moment it becomes anything but love of neighbor, then it's it's ashes to me. It's worthless. That's the end game. It's not about it's not about partisan politics. It's about what's best for each other. And the Republican Party is not always going to get it right. It doesn't always get it right. It makes and and. But I want to be I want to be part of the solution. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the the polarization in the U.S. right now, which maybe we'll talk about in a few minutes, has has become very much you know framed around race. And so I think one thing that was interesting to me from those exit polls was even though the the increased number of Latino or Black voters voting for Trump, it, even though they were still small, it was that sense of can we can we kind of scramble the demographics a little bit and kind of challenge that narrative of the the strict 
you know, racial lines in particular, and to some degree, gender lines on on polarization, which I, I think often gets framed in that way. And and maybe on that note, I, I want to just maybe press you a little bit more on what you said about there being a narrative in some among some in the Republican Party right now with more of the what some might say, like speaking more in terms of white supremacy or white grievance and whatnot. And that that's not you don't see that as being really appropriate for the party. How, how do you how do you push back at that? And I've read some things that you've read about, you know, believing in racial unity, inviting people for dialogue and focusing on what what um, what makes us stronger rather than divide. So how are you personally kind of navigating that? Tension, sure. I guess that's a great question. I don't know if I have easy answers. So I guess first is the foundation, which, you know, I'm coming from a, a Roman Catholic or Christian perspective, right, where, I mean, it, it should be taken for granted, but for some, it's not that that every human being is, is equal in value and dignity. And then as an American, right, we, we don't live in an ethnic nationalist state. I mean, there, there, there are some countries that are, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not knocking that that's different for them, but America is a civic nationalist country. And we have, um, we have people of, of, of all different races and ethnicities and creeds, et cetera. And that's the promise of America. And whether we like it or not, we're here together and we need to, this, again, this may sound too saccharine, but we have to learn to, to love each other and live together and live in solidarity with each other. That is not only the right thing to do, it's the only thing that's going to work. So within the Republican party, you know, I'll give you an example. This is a small example. Um, but after the, the Capitol riots on January 6th, we immediately released a statement and said, you know, called it what it was, which was sedition. It was terrorism. And we said the election's over and we need to move on and we need to we need to pray for president like Biden. And there were a lot of people that maybe weren't as happy with that. But um, in, in Shelby County, there is absolutely no room in the Republican Party for um, people who are white supremacists, people who have any sort of animosity toward other people on the basis of their race or ethnicity. There's no place for that. Within the church, there's no place for that within within our political party, and we're going to push against it. And um, I think a lot of it's about leadership. I think if, if you have people in positions of leadership that take a very strong stand um, in favor of racial reconciliation, in favor of solidarity, in favor of unity, then I think that that will filter down. And, and I think you also need to, at times... You need to at time exclude people and ideologies that that run counter to that, and and I'm insistent upon it. And and this is com- coming, you know, I, I'm obviously a a white middle class dude who grew up white middle class, and I live in the burbs. But this is something that's close to my heart, um, you know, because I had a, just a brief window in, into into a little bit of this. My you know my wife taught for Teach for America in one of the poorest neighborhoods in Washington D.C., and then when we moved back to Memphis, we lived intentionally in an overwhelmingly African-American, um, low-income neighborhood in the center of the city. And, you know, we were involved in, you know, mentoring and, and a lot of different things. And so this is real life for me. These are my, you know, people that were my neighbors. These are people that are, are my friends. These are um, young men that I, that I spent a lot of time with and mentored. And so it, it, it's real for me that I, I want to see everybody flourish and I, and I do want to see um, I do want to see unity across racial racial lines especially in a place like Memphis which has such a just an awful uh, terrifying history uh, surrounding that issue and so it's 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 personal for me um, in a variety of ways and just to close that how, how do you see that issue right now in Memphis do you see things getting better do you see leaders kind of nudging things in the right direction as you just said do you see communities nudging things in the right direction? Or um, how do you see the situation now? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think Memphis has something, and I know I keep coming back to this issue. Forgive me, and, and I may, maybe some people will be dismissive, but maybe, maybe rightly so. But Memphis has a, a foundation um, in that it is one of the most religious cities in America. So you you hardly, and, and most people in Memphis are Christians. There's different denominations, obviously, but um, that is a, a source of unity. And I'll tell you, over the summer, with with the uh, a lot of the protests and in some cities, you know, violent riots, which were unacceptable. We didn't have that in Memphis. We had a pastor leading peaceful protest. I think at one point, maybe some kids at the very back um, of of the group, you know, broke maybe one or two windows. We're talking about in, again in a city of 1.3 million people that has an overwhelmingly black majority. We had no violence. Let me give you some other examples. In the city of Memphis, again, I, I mentioned before, it's maybe 29% white. There, um, there is a white Democratic mayor of the city of Memphis. But for the county, which includes the suburbs, and the county's more, um, as a whole, it's a little bit more Republican, we have a black Democratic county mayor. Our district attorney is a white Republican woman. So again, I, I'm not trying to pretend like things are great, but I think they're going in the right direction. I think we are seeing, as compared to 20 or 30 years ago, greater integration um, in the schools. We're seeing greater integration um, socially, you know, for example, in churches. And there are a lot of people who are are very moved uh, by this issue and, and see it as one of extreme importance, you know. And um, there's a lot of really beautiful work that that's being done that, 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 that I've seen. So I, I think it's, I think it's a sign of great encouragement. Again, we have, we still have tremendous problems. I think, you know, we could, we could talk about critical race theory and institutional or systemic racism. I certainly think there's still vestiges of racism that are, they're holding black back, um, you know, uh, our, our black friends and neighbors, but I, I, th- I really do think progress is being made. I think a lot of people will argue vociferously that not enough progress is being made. I think that's a separate conversation, but to answer your question directly, if we're looking at, you know, are things trending in a positive or ne- negative direction? I think they're turning in a positive direction. You're listening to The Julie Norman Show. Well, and on that note, too, I, to address this issue or any other number of issues, I, I assume you need some kind of a, a bipartisan effort and kind of working on, on both sides of the aisle on some of this. So you've said some of that specifically in some of your writings, too, you know, committed to reaching out, listening to every citizen, even those who don't share our vision. Has that been possible? And I guess especially during the 2020 election, during that year, how are kind of relations between Democrats and Republicans in Shelby County? Do you think maybe bipartisanship works better at the local level than the national yeah. level? What, what, what's yeah. kind of your take on that? I think that's exactly right. I think your instincts are right. So I'll give you an example, just an anecdotal example. So when I was first elected chairman two years ago at the time, and he has since left the position um, because his term expired, but one of my best friends who I, a gentleman I went to law school with was chairman of the Democratic Party. Okay. We are, we disagree about many, many things, but we agree about many things. But, um, so, you know, I I think obviously the 2020 election, one of the most polarized, definitely since the sixties, maybe since the 1860s, God forbid, but, um, very polarized, but you see, I think you see, you see a lot of that at a local level, but I think it's less intense and, uh, you know, we're committed, our, our, our next elections are in 2022. So that's the county mayor, that's the district attorney, that's sheriff, everything down the line, all of our judges, um, the Republican parties, and we'll see if we're successful. We're committed to 
uh, recruiting and running a diverse slate of candidates um, that's going to represent and appeal to a broad swath of the electorate, not just um, uh, upper middle class white people that live um, in the suburbs. And so we'll see, you know, our candidate for the only local election, um, so our candidate for the 9th Congressional District um, was an African-American woman. Our candidate for the only local election in 2020, which was a court clerk position, was an African-American man. But, you know, again, there's there's always there's always partisanship. There's always tension. But I, I think it's a whole lot better in Memphis than it is in D.C. Um, and it's because, you know, you, it's hard to be it's hard to really hate and be angry at a person that you might run into at the grocery store. It's just it's a lot of work to do that. It's just more, much more difficult to do that, um, which is a healthy thing. That's why we're supposed to be in community with each other. Right. That's what we're supposed to be. So. Absolutely. I, I would ask, I mean, would you say that polarization is maybe a bit overstated sometimes? And and by association, what do you think of Biden's recent calls for unity? And that is, I, I go back and forth. I wish I had a good answer. So part of me says, yes, it's overstated. Part of me says, listen, we're Americans. Um, by and large, we believe the same things. We have the same hopes and dreams uh, for ourselves and for our children. Um, we may disagree about the past to get there, but I think they're broadly uh, consonant. There's another part of me that that looks deeper and says, and asks the question of what we believe about the fundamental issues are we living into, m- maybe multiple countries, some people say two separate countries, but what do we believe about the fundamental things about our relationships to each other, about all of the major issues? I don't know. I don't know. So on one hand, sometimes I'm optimistic and sometimes I despair. Yeah, I think I think it just is incumbent upon each person to um, to work on that individually, and 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 maybe that will have a, a collective, um, you know, a, a collective result. Um, regarding President Biden, you know, my my gut is that that President Biden is a center left guy, and I think a lot of the the talk of unity. I, I hope it's sincere, but I think it's probably going to run into the you know into a, a brick wall, and it's probably going to become lip service. And I hate to say that. But I mean, we just saw it yesterday, right? I mean, hey, I want to do this bipartisan COVID relief bill. Apparently, he never talked to any Republican senators, barely talked to him, and then they they're jamming it through reconciliation. You know, that's not that's not a great start. Now, do I I get it, right? This is this is real politique. He's got it. You know, he has this important agenda item. He wants it done in the first little bit of his presidency while he has some momentum. He's got the majorities, right? I'm not saying Republicans would do anything differently, but I do find it fascinating that you know. At the inaugural, he says one thing, and then you know a couple of weeks later, here we are with a 51-50 tie-breaking vote. Yeah, I, I know they unlocked the process yesterday. I, I do hope they give it some more time with some good faith efforts. Uh, That's right. Go, I should. Um, you're exactly right. I should have specified. I guess that was just the vote for the process rather than the vote itself. Yeah. Which I, I hope is just. Um, kind of a, a signaling, like a credible threat <laughs> that's but, right, that's but right, to, that's to right. kind of push for negotiations a bit more. Because they did meet this week. And, and I mean, it was you know, the, the counter kind of bill, I think, was 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 much lower than they, they wanted. But I, I I won't get off too much on this. But I, I do think there's a little worry about the Democrats, like overlearning the lessons from 2009 and being like too eager to like push something through to show that they're not going to, you know, be, be pushed around or something, but they need to at least have a good faith effort on this. And um, anyway, I, I guess turning to something a little bit different. I mean, you've, you know, you're obviously very much driven by this commitment to the common good. You've spoken about trying to empower people of integrity. I guess many Democrats or liberals would probably ask how you square that vision with Republican Party support for for Trump over the past four years and even now going into the impeachment trial, like there will always be policy differences 
of course. But, you know, I think Trump, you know, lost some of those voters in some of the communities you're talking about because of what people saw as a lack of integrity or basic decency, including to many within his own party, like Mitt Romney and others. So I guess, how do you reconcile that, especially in your role as chair? We try to focus. Now, we're talking a lot about national issues, but at our board meeting last night or when I talked to the you know, the local TV station, we are trying to, we, we're trying to focus laser like on, on local issues. Um, and that's really, that's really our job pursuant to our bylaws. My job is, is, is more to elect, um, Republicans in Shelby County and in Memphis, not statewide, not nationwide. But I, I think to your point, let, let me sort of, I'm going to give you two answers. So the first thing is, is a policy answer. The second thing is, is sort of a, a, a message or a perception or you know communication answer. So the first thing is I think I think the movement if Trumpism is a coherent political ideology and maybe maybe people could could disagree about that, but I, I think the the momentum the trend for for President Trump or people in sort of maybe the populist nationalist wing pushing the party on entitlements on trade on um, foreign wars, I think those are positive developments that are consistent with sort of uh, a, a working class, almost, I'm going to say this in um, like a, the very specific political science, and like almost like a, you can see some, uh, maybe a flavor of, you know, law and justice in Poland or or the, you know, Christian social union in Bavaria, right? And more of a, a working class party that's, that's less obsessed with, you know, capital gains, uh, tax cuts, and more focused on um, you know, what are we doing for the middle classes and the working classes? So I think that's extremely positive. I think that's here to stay. And I think that's because President Trump pushed those issues, right? I mean, you, you had a scramble not too long ago in these presidential Republican presidential primaries about, you know, I promised that, you know, the first thing I'm, I'm going to do, and I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating here, but the first thing I'm going to do is, is, you know, cut, cut grandma's uh, social security check, right? I mean, you know, we, we've had these debates. Those debates are, are over now. We're not talking, we're talking less about capital gains tax cuts. We're talking more about child family tax credits. We're, we're talking less about regime change and, and more about how to ensure that our women and men in uniform um, are protecting the national interest and not in harm's way. We're, we're talking less about you know, uh, reverse mergers to get tax cuts in Ireland and more about how we're going to make dishwashers and, and washing machines in Ohio. I think all of those things are extremely positive elements. And I'm not saying I'm, I'm against free trade. I'm not. I just think the Republican Party needs to have more balance about it. And I think this is refreshing and it's good. And it's in large part because uh, President Trump pushed those issues. Um, and, 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 and I like that. With respect to the rhetoric, I, I disagree with a lot of it. I, I think, you know, the, the first thing I, I liked, you know, I, I try to ask, or at least what I teach my children, maybe I don't live up to it personally, but it is, is, is what are you going to say? Is it charitable? Is it is it edifying? Is it redemptive? Right. And I I don't think by that that standard, I think he failed over and over and over again. And I think it's his own loss. I think um, President Trump had the right instincts on a lot of issues, but the way he communicated it was um, it misguided. And in many places, it was wrong. Um, and and and. And I think it's fascinating, too, that so many in the Republican Party refuse to say anything about it because 
um, especially for people who are loyal, because we're supposed to, we're sp- above anything else, we're supposed to tell the hard truths to our friends, right, to people that we're supposedly loyal to. And I think that if President Trump had been a different communicator, I think if he would have taken those policy positions and been more of a Reagan, an optimist, uh, a healer, a reconciler, I think that he would have thumped Biden. I think that he would have held on to people who look like me, middle class uh, white males. I think he would have retained that increase in um, Hispanic and African-American vote. And I, I think that we would have seen a massive Republican win. Um, but that's not in his nature. I will say this. Um, you know, everything that President Trump said was not bad. And he said a lot of things that that people should have said a long time ago, but that people were afraid to say on, on some hard issues, you know, and, and, and issues that. That I'm not even talking about the culture war issues. I mean, he has some hardcore. Why do we still have troops in Afghanistan? A lot of people have been wanting to ask that, and he said it. Um, and and he he said a, a lot of things about the dominance of a left liberal mainstream media. Um, there was a market for that. Why was there a market for that? It's because politicians and maybe people like me they 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 soft pedal around some of these issues. Um, so I, what I would like to see is I would like to see someone who combines those political instincts on those policies we talked about to make the Republican Party more of a working class party with those priorities, but with a, um, and and that can also speak truth, um, sometimes the hard truth, but they would say the truth in love and they would say it um, in a way that's edifying and that's charitable and that's redemptive and that's unifying and in a way that, you know, on some occasions he was incapable of doing, um, especially after the election. And what you just said, do you think it's possible for the Republican Party at this time to retain some of those more, you know, quote unquote, populist thinking policies or just, um, you know, policies that are more focused on on working class issues and grievances in a way that maybe they hadn't been before, but with a different leader who is not Trump? Like, do, do you think it can what, what do you think will happen with the party? And, and can that can that kind of ideology take root and, and, and kind of get a following behind someone that doesn't have that figurehead of, of Donald Trump in particular? I, I think yes. I think yes. And I think fusionism, excuse fusionism, this idea that it was sort of the, the building block of the Republican Party, which is you're combining national security conservatives, you're combining sort of libertarian economic right people, and you're combining cultural, traditional, social conservatives. Those are the three legs of the stool of the Republican Party. I think that's over. I think that's. I think there will be vestiges of that, but I think you have people like Mike Lee. Um, you know, Marco Rubio is a little bit more interventionist, but on you know on on social you know entitlement spending, um, I, I think I think you see people. Um, Hawley, you know his his. I don't know where his political career is going to go, but I, I think you see people that are going to push the party in that direction, and you're not going to see sort of a, a Bush era fusionist. Um, uh, uh, you're still going to see that in the party. I think there's still going to be a fight, but I think it's going to be less dominant. And I think it's 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 because of real trends. I think, you know, you saw the Chamber of Commerce now, right? They're not they're not only going to give to Republicans anymore, right? You're seeing things on the ground that are happening, where you have people who maybe are traditional conservatives but more economically populist, sort of Reagan Democrats, Trump, uh, um, you know, Trump Democrats. I think that's a permanent part of the of the big tent political party now. Um, and I think we're losing, the Republican Party is losing socially liberal, coastal white elites where they used to win them, right? I mean, you know, we can just look at, um, you know, the voting trends in Manhattan, you know, over the past 50 years. And, you know, um, the Upper East Side, I think, used to vote uh, consistently Republican, at least certain precincts. I mean, we're not seeing that anymore. So we're seeing social trends, I think, that that are informing that, that shift within the Republican Party. And I, I think the working class, 
Republican Party is here to stay, and I, I'm certainly going to fight for it. What is something that you think most Democrats get wrong about Republicans? I think that a lot of Democrats think that um, Republicans are just a bunch of wealthy white people who only care about um, themselves and, and preserving political power. I think that's the caricature. Now, if you really put, if I really push my Democratic friends, do they actually think that? No, but that's the caricature. And 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 let me tell you, even on a local level, and these, and, and I don't agree with everybody on my team. I don't agree with everybody on our board. We represent; it's a big tent party. We we represent different wings of it. But I can tell you with absolute confidence that every single person on our board, which is 30, 40 people who are intimately involved in Republican Party politics, they care about their neighbor. They are in it. Maybe some of it's because it's politics, it's a passion, it's a hobby, it's what their friends do. But at the end of the day, I promise you, each of these people, they care about um, the single mom in the inner city. They care about um, the working class person that's trying to put food on the table. They care about the kid that's locked into a failing public school. They, I mean, they care. They, they. It's not about preserving, you know, white upper middle class dominance. It's not what it's about. It's legitimately about, about people. And again, we can disagree about what the best public policy solutions are, but I think that caricature is totally wrong. It's certainly, I would like to think it's wrong for me at a personal level, but I think it's also wrong for the, for the people who serve on the board. And, and then the local, you know, I'm friends with these people, the, the state reps, the state senators, the county commissioners, like they are in it because, and they don't get, always get it right. And they don't always say the right things. They don't always make the right votes, but they're at the end of the day, they're in it because they, um, they want to love their neighbor and they they care about everybody in Memphis, black, white, rich, poor, you know, suburb, urban. They, they care. Um, so I, I think we should dispense with that caricature. And I, just like I think people on the right should dispense with their caricatures about the people on the left. We're people, you know. Um, I don't know. I, I was actually going to ask you that next as someone who's worked a lot with with Democrats and, uh, you know, professionally and, and, and with friends and stuff, too. What are maybe some things that you think many in the Republican Party get wrong about Democrats based on your experiences or like what are some of those caricatures that that you've seen challenged? Yeah, I, th I think that, you know, there's some people on the right and, and maybe I can buy into this sometimes, too. And I think it's wrong. And I, I try to check myself when I do. But, you know, that that Democrats are, you know, they they're uh, they're class warriors. They want to eat the rich. They want to, you know, you know. Uh, usher in, you know, some sort of socialist regime and that that's going to redistribute everything. And, you know, they're, it's resentment politics and they're out to get people. Um, I don't think that's, I, by and large, I don't think that's true. I'm sure there's some people that, that, that live up to that, just like there are people on the right that live up to their character characterization of, of, of Republicans or conservatives. But I think um, most of the Democrats I know, we, we actually agree, especially in this area, we actually agree on a a tremendous amount of things. But, you know, I think once you get to DC, things get crazy, you know, because of the system that we're in, you know, the, the, the two party system, because of the primary system that we're in, because of the structure of our government, I think it, it caters to, um, you know, it, it doesn't leave much room for people who want to, um, who want to say nice things about the other side. But I, I think it's a moral imperative too. And I, I don't think that we can, we can, we can move forward as a, as a people if, 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 if we get stuck in this. Well, what's next for you, Chris? Any, uh, any plans to run for office or to, um, what's, what's next for you? You know, this has been an education for me because 
you know, I, I think it's really stripped politics of uh, some of the glamour that I thought that it would have. Um, <laughs> when you're down in the weeds. I honestly don't know. And I'm not being coy. I think if you'd asked me five or 10 years ago, I said, yeah, I would love to to run for something one day. I don't know if that's school board or, um, you know, I, but but now I, I think, honestly, I, I want to have a wait and see approach. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you. You know, the people that represent me, for example, my state representative, you know, I, I don't need to run against him. He's doing a great job. I, I, if, if I run, I want it to be about, um, I want it to be about my neighbors. I don't want it to be a vanity project. So, I mean, we have young children, you know, we have um, four children with one on the way. So I think it's going to, this is going to be a season. This upcoming season is a season for me to try to be the dad that I want to be and the husband that I want to be and, and, and maybe take the foot off the gas a little bit politically uh, for some time. So, um, you know, that it's my, it's my passion. It's what I love. It's, it's, you know, an opportunity, I think my opportunity for me to serve my community, but, um, I think in the next little bit, it's going to be, um, about, um, you know, taking care of the family. Uh, so I think someone, I don't know if this is apocryphal, but I've, I've always found it instructive. I think someone, um, at a big conference got to the microphone and asked mother Teresa, now St. Uh, Teresa of Calcutta, um, you know, what should I do to change the world? You know, what should I do to change the world? And she was expecting something magnificent, like sell all your possessions and meet me in um, Mumbai or whatever, or Calcutta. And instead she replied, go home and love your family. Right. And um, that's, you know, that's the truth of it. How do you, you know, what's, what's wrong with the world, mom? And, you know, it's look in the mirror, right? So, you know, if we want to, if we want to make our communities a better place, we want to make America a better place, the place that we want it to be, then we go home and, and we love our, our, our family and our friends and our neighbors, um, um, you know, self-sacrificially. Again, I'm on my soapbox and that probably sounds way too saccharine and um, syrup, but I think it's the truth. So, I'll end with the question we usually end with, and that's if there's any book recommendations that you have for listeners. I guess there's a couple books. Um, so years ago, I read the, the Conservative Mind by Russell Kirk, which is sort of an intellectual history of the right, and he pulls a lot of different sources. I think it's I think the subtitle is from from um, Burke to to T. S. Eliot. I think which was part of my journey, as you asked earlier, sort of into this broader sort of common good conservatism. And then the other book, which is a book that I read. Just just a couple of years ago, it's called Island of the World. It's by a Canadian novelist named Michael D. O'Brien, and um, it's about a um, it's a coming of age story about a, a Croatian, an ethnically Croatian uh, boy in Bosnia Herzegovina in the early 20th century. And obviously, that was a tough, a rough neighborhood during that time. And it's just a, I mean, just a a, a beautiful, powerful, mysterious, deeply humane um, story about. I think really what what it means to be a what it means to be a person on planet Earth, uh, which is it ain't easy, right? So I, those are those are probably two books that have really just really influenced me. Um, I could go on and on. I love books, so we could talk about it. All, but <laughs> that, that'll that'll be the next podcast. Well, I'll link to those in the show notes. But Chris, thank you so much for this. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Dr. Norman. It's been it's been a joy, and I hope we do it again sometime. Thank you once again to Chris Tudor. You have been listening to The Julie Norman Show. If you like this podcast, please take two seconds to subscribe, share it with a friend, give it a rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, if you have any comments, questions, or guest suggestions, feel free to DM me on Twitter at DrJulieNorman2. Thank you for listening. Take care. Stay well and tune in again next time.